tonight we are continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus, the mediator of a New Testament or a new covenant. And for anybody new listening or watching a video, when we say testament or covenant, uh, we're always talking about the blood of Jesus being the New Testament that changed how people relate to God. We relate to God by grace through the cross. We're not talking about books when we say New Testament. We're not talking about books when we say Old Testament. The Old Testament was the law of Moses, and the New Testament is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that was established at the cross and in his blood. And this is teaching number 34. It's entitled, How the Old Items in the Tabernacle Point to Jesus and the New Testament. We're on part seven of this study. And tonight we're on the gold jar of manna. It comes out of Hebrews chapter nine, verses three through five, which read, behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold covered Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testament. The ark contained the gold jar of manna. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. It's found in Exodus 16, 31 through 36, Numbers chapter 11, Deuteronomy 8, Joshua chapter 5. The ark also contained Aaron's staff that had budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. So last week we looked at the stone tablets of the covenant, which is the Ten Commandments, and we saw that it's a ministry of death. We saw that the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Ten Commandments, the word Ark means coffin, and the Ten Commandments were placed in a coffin. It could be the coffin of the covenant. The Ten Commandments bring death. So that's why the Ten Commandments were placed in the coffin of the covenant. Now, I want us to see tonight the relationship between the gold jar of manna and the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments bring death. What we're going to see with the gold jar of manna is that represents the body of Jesus who paid our death penalty. He went to the cross. He gave his body because he loved us. He gave himself for us. He died our death. He took the death that the Ten Commandments brought. And then Jesus wasn't placed in a coffin. He was placed in a tomb. Our sin debt was placed on the cross in the tomb, and Jesus arose from the dead, and he left our sin debt in the tomb. So the gold jar of manna represents Jesus, specifically the new covenant of grace. And I'll show you that momentarily, how the manna in the gold jar represents the new covenant of grace. Now, you know, the manna is what came out of heaven the, when the children of Israel were hungry and bread came out of heaven, manna, and fed the children of Israel after they had been released from slavery and they get into the wilderness and they start complaining and murmuring and God gives them manna from heaven. Well, we're going to see later that that manna specifically relates to or refers to or symbolizes, would be a better word, Jesus, the bread of life, who gave himself for us to establish the New Testament in his blood. Now, we're going to start with John chapter 6, verses 25 through 26. Why John chapter 6, 25 through 26? Because this is where Jesus talks about that his body is the manna, his body is the bread, his, he gives himself, he sheds his blood, and this manna is the bread of Jesus, his body given himself for us to establish the New Testament of grace. 
That's why we're looking in John chapter 6, verses 25 through 26. So it says this, when they, this is those who experienced the miracle of the loaves of bread and fish being multiplied. So when they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the lake, that's on the other side of where he did the miracle. So the disciples went to the other side of the lake in a boat. Jesus walks on the water. Then they go immediately to the other shore. When they, that's those who experienced the miracle of the fish and the loaves of bread being multiplied, found Jesus on the other side of the lake. This would have been somewhere around the synagogue in Capernaum, because this is where all this is going to take place. Probably initially around the synagogue in Capernaum, but ultimately this whole conversation that we see Jesus have with the Jewish people is in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's, it's a Jewish audience that he's communicating with and having a conversation with and teaching in John chapter 6, 25 through 26. We know it's in Capernaum, John chapter 6, verse 59. That's how we know it's at the synagogue in Capernaum. So when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, meaning teacher, when did you get here? They knew the disciples had come over in the boat, but they never saw Jesus leave. So they're trying to figure out how did Jesus get from this side of the lake to that side of the lake? And they're looking for him. They're searching him out. So Jesus answers them in verse 26. He says, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because, of, not because you saw the signs, the signs being the healings that he did prior to the feeding of the 5,000, the signs being the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So that's how we know the crowd of people that Jesus is communicating to are some of the 5,000 who came over to Capernaum searching for Jesus. Now, the miracles that Jesus did authenticated him as the Messiah. They validated Jesus as the Christ. John the Baptist knew he was about to be beheaded, and he sent his disciples to Jesus. And he says, I want you to go ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Jesus sends John the Baptist's disciples back to John the Baptist and says, here's what I want you to tell John the Baptist. The lame walk, the blind see, and the deaf hear. Meaning that, yes, John, I'm the Messiah because the miracles that I do authenticate that I am the Christ. I am the one that God sent into the world, that Jewish scripture talks about, that God sent into the world to be the savior of the world. It's what Christ means. Jesus, the one sent by God to be the savior of the world, and the Christ or the Messiah would be the one God would send as the king to establish God's eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace on earth. So that's what Christ means. Christ just means savior king. He's going to be the savior of the world, and he's going to establish God's kingdom on earth. And you can read about this coming kingdom of righteousness and peace on earth. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, Micah 5, 2, Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33, and John chapter 4, verse 42. Now, 
In John chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus turns the conversation from physical food to spiritual food, just like he did in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. He turns the conversation from physical water to spiritual water. Where here in John 6, 27, he turns the conversation from physical food to spiritual food. Let's look at how Jesus does this. John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures, food that lasts, food that remains, food that stays for all eternity. So do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. So now we see that this topic is eternal life, and that's going to be the theme for the rest of John chapter 6 from 27 through verse 71, this, the theme of eternal life. So Jesus brings up the topic, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, now that's a title, the Son of Man is a title of the Messiah, a the title of the Christ, or one of the titles of the Christ. Specifically, Son of Man, you can read about that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Hebrews chapter 2 is all about Jesus being the Son of Man meaning 100% human, son of God. He's 100% God, Hebrews chapter 1. So do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to, e to eternal life, which the Son of Man, Daniel 7, 13, Hebrews 2. This title, Son of Man, is used 80 times in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Stephen, in Acts seven fifty six says, I see the Son of Man. So the Son of Man was this title that the Christ would have. So when Jesus is talking to this Jewish audience, they understood the title Son of Man. They understood that this title Son of Man refers to the Christ, refers to the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah to come. They were looking for the Savior of the world. They were looking for the King that would establish the righteous kingdom on earth. So when Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And he follows that up with this statement, for on him, the Son of Man, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So Jesus, in this statement, is claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the Christ, that God has marked him as the Christ, the seal of approval. I'm, I'm marking you, but through your miracles, I'm identifying to the nation of Israel through the miracles of Jesus that he's the Messiah. So the seal of approval, the marking of God through the miracles, mark Jesus as the Christ, mark Jesus as the Messiah. God is guaranteeing to the nation of Israel that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Whenever we put a, a, a stamp of approval on something, it's very visual. So we put a stamp of approval on something because we want somebody to see it and recognize it as being authentic, as being trustworthy. So when Jesus says, the Father has placed upon me his seal of approval, what he's saying is, my miracles is visual evidence that I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. The miracles that I'm doing is the Father giving credibility to you 
that I'm the Christ, that I'm the Messiah. And that's what all this conversation is as well, because what Jesus says here is he says, the son of man is going to give you eternal life. And so the theme of this whole conversation is trying to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah so they'll believe in him and have eternal life. And we see that all the way through this conversation. All right. Because God the Father marked Jesus as the Christ, marked him with the miracles as the Christ, the Jewish people needed to listen to Jesus and they needed to learn from Jesus because God had placed the seal of approval on Jesus. Therefore, listen to him and learn from him. Jesus intentionally uses the word or the two words, work and eternal life. He's very strategic in his word choice. When he says, do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life, the idea of working for eternal life was established in the mind of a Jewish person. They, they wanted eternal life. They wanted to do works to achieve eternal life. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he mentions work and eternal life together. John 6, 27 through 71, this, this conversation that Jesus is having with the Jewish people. The idea of eternal life for the Jewish person was deeply rooted in Jewish scriptures. Jesus is just not throwing out the term eternal life. It's rooted deeply. It's established. It's embedded in Jewish scriptures. Therefore, it was embedded in the minds of the Jewish people. What Jesus is referring to in John chapter 6 and this conversation on eternal life, and you'll see it begin to, to come forth in Jesus's conversation with the disciples, is he's referring to Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. It's one of the main verses that shaped the theology of the Jewish people when it came to eternal life. And in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, Michael the archangel is speaking. He's given Daniel the revelation of future events for Israel. And where the book of Daniel leaves off, the book of Revelation picks up. The book of Revelation finishes what Daniel starts. And so Michael the archangel is speaking to Daniel about future events. And specifically in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, he's talking to Daniel about the end of time on this earth. Time on this earth ends in death. We're living in the age of death is what I would say because people die, consistently, constantly die. It's the age of death. We're not in the age of eternal life yet. We're in the age of, of death. We've been given the gift of eternal life. Eternal life is ours, but we're not experiencing eternal life yet because people die. And so what Michael the Ar Archangel says is, 
he's talking about the end of time on this earth. This age of death will come to an end. And at the end of time on this earth, prior to, be, to the beginning of a new time on earth called eternal life or everlasting life, which is fulfilled, we see in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Let's look at what Michael the archangel speaks about in Daniel 12, 2 through 3. These two verses are really important to grasp if we're going to, going to understand John chapter 6. Because remember, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience in a Jewish synagogue who understood Jewish scripture. They understood Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Because this whole conversation that Jesus has with them is established and based in Daniel 12, 2 through 3. And here's what Michael the Archangel says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. He's referring to those who've died. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. This is at the end of time, when, when this age of death comes to an end. It's right before the new earth is established. It's right before Revelation 21 is established. Okay. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, that's eternal life. Some are going to awake. Those who've died during the age of death will awake or be resurrected to have everlasting life, eternal life. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So everybody's going to experience a resurrection. Some will be re resurrected or awaken to eternal life or everlasting life, and others to everlasting contempt, to everlasting shame, to everlasting destruction. We'll see that later. Jesus will talk about that. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. So here's what the Jewish people understood based upon this verse. Only the righteous will have everlasting life. And those who lead people to righteousness are wise. They're wise because they understand that the only way to have everlasting life, eternal life, is to be righteous. And that's what we see in the book of Proverbs. We've read on many verses about that. So the wise are those who tell other people, here's how you become righteous so that you can have everlasting life. Jesus spoke about this awakening from the dead in John chapter 5. 28 through 29, this resurrection from the dead. And he says this, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. That's going back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. That's the everlasting life of Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, okay? 
Those who have done what is good will rise to live. This is going to be, we're going to see the good here is believe. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. That is the everlasting contempt. Can read in John chapter 12, verses 48 through 49 about the rejection of Jesus, the condemnation upon those who reject Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. Okay, so there's a new earth coming. There's a new age of life coming called everlasting life. We're not there yet. We're in the age of death. There's an age of life coming where nobody dies. Revelation chapter 21, one through five. No mourning, no pain, no crying, no death, no tears. We're not living in that age yet. We're living in the age of death. We have eternal life. We will live forever, but we're going to die physically. So we're still in the age of death, but the age of life is coming, okay? Paul talks about getting new bodies in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about getting new bodies in 2 Corinthians 5 spiritual bodies that will never, ever die. So on the new earth, we'll have a new body and we will never die. Now, there's two kinds of spiritual life, so to speak, eternal life. There's eternal life that begins spiritually when a person believes in Jesus. I mean, we have eternal life, but we still die. So there's a part of eternal life that we're not experiencing yet because we still die. Revelation 21 isn't here yet. There's also eternal life in our new bodies when we receive our new bodies that are fit for the new earth. Revelation 21 again. All right. We're in the age of death. Our bodies die. We will get new bodies that will live on the new earth. And that's the everlasting age where nobody dies. We're in the age of death. We're looking forward to the eternal age where nobody dies. The Jewish people, that's what they look forward to. They understood they were living in the age of death. They wanted to live in the age of life where they would be resurrected to everlasting life. Daniel chapter 12, verses two through three, they understood righteousness was required to live eternally. And they were looking forward to this time. This is what Jesus is going to expound on in John chapter six. In John chapter five and in John chapter 11, Jesus speaks about being made spiritually alive the moment we believe. And he also speaks about receiving our new spiritual bodies that will never die. That's in the context of John 5, the verses that we just read. It's also in John 11, verses 21 through 27. And this is when Jesus and Martha are talking about the resurrection of the dead to eternal life. Daniel chapter 12, verses two through three, are embedded in the mind of Martha. She was a Jewish little girl that learned all about this. Now she's a Jewish woman. She understands the resurrection, and some will go into eternal life, and some will go into eternal condemnation. So look at the conversation that Jesus has with Martha. This is John 11, 21 through 27. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And then Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. That's directly related to Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. Your brother will rise again. Look what Martha says. This helps us see into the mind of Martha, her theology. That her theology is rooted in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. Martha answered Jesus. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. We're going to look at what the last day here is in in just a minute. But that's referring right back to Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. I know my brother will will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. This is the resurrection or the awakening that Michael the archangel talked about. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. That's being made alive spiritually at the moment of belief. And notice it's belief. The one who believes in me will live. That's being made spiritually alive the moment at belief, even though they die. So we're not in the age of eternal life yet, Revelation 21, where nobody dies. That's what eternal life means. It's like nobody dies. Live forever. We're not in that age yet. But we have eternal life. Even though we die physically, eternal life is still ours. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, there's believing again, by believing in me will never die. So he says, those who believe will die, and those who believe will never die. He's talking about two different types of eternal life. The eternal life that we possess, it's ours, but we still die. And then the eternal life that we're going to experience when we get our new bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5, our new bodies fit for the new earth where nobody dies. No more death, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more heartache. All right. And then Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? And Martha said, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. That's the Christ. That's the Messiah, the one that was to come. And the reason Martha had eternal life, she knew her brother would have eternal life, was because of belief in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead to prove in the context as a sign to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people, that he was the Messiah, so that they too would believe he was the Messiah. Now, the last day here is referring to Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, to the time God awakens the dead and all who have died. He awakens all who have died. Those who are righteous in Daniel 12, 2 through 3, will awaken to eternal life and live on the new earth with new spiritual bodies. Those who are unrighteous, the wicked, will awaken to eternal judgment or eternal condemnation. Again, Daniel 12, 2 through 3. In Acts chapter 24, verse 15, Paul speaks about the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. Where did Paul get that? He gets it from Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. And here's what Paul says in Acts 24, 15. 
Paul says, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Right out of Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. And other prophets talk about the same resurrection as well, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. Now, Jesus understood the audience he was communicating with. He understood that they believed in the resurrection, that some would would rise to eternal life and some would rise to eternal condemnation. He also knew that they were depending upon their works to gain the righteousness necessary to have eternal life. So he brings up work and he brings up eternal life. He's very strategic in what he's doing here because he understands his audience because he wants to get across to them in this conversation that if you want eternal life, then believe in me. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. And by believing in me, you will be given eternal life. Remember, the Son of Man will give you eternal life. I'm the Son of Man. Believe in me and I will give you eternal life. So he knows he's dealing with an audience that's depending upon their works to gain eternal life. That was embedded in Jewish culture. We looked at that last week with the expert in the law and the Good Samaritan story that Jesus told. We looked at it with the rich young ruler. And the two questions that the expert in the law and the rich young ruler asked individually was really the same question. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? When the resurrection happens, those who do good will enter into eternal life, and those who are wicked will enter into eternal condemnation. The Jewish mind was, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the same thing that people do today in our culture. It's the same questions that people in our culture ask. What good thing must I do? What law must I keep? What discipline must I adhere to? What rule must I obey? What ritual must I practice? What holiday must I celebrate or not celebrate? How moral must I be? How committed must I be? How devoted must I be to be right with God? to have eternal life, to be in good standing with God, to be saved by God, or to be in fellowship with God. What is it that I have to do? Just tell me, and I'll do it. That's the question that the Jewish people were asking. The expert in the law asked it, the rich young ruler asked it, and the people are asking the same question. What good thing must I do to merit eternal life? Jesus understood this works-based mindset of the Jewish culture. That's why he purposely said in John chapter 6, verse 27, it's a strategic statement. He says this, do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life. Now, Jesus knew what they were going to ask. He knew how they were going to respond to that statement. And here's what the people say in John chapter 6, verse 28. What must we do to do the works God requires? That's the question they're asking. Because Jesus just said, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Work for that food. Well, then the natural question they're going to ask is, what are these works 
that we must do that lasts for eternity, that produces eternal life for us, that gains eternal life for us? What is the work that God requires us to do so that we can have eternal life? That's, that's the mindset of human beings all over the world. What is it I must do? Just tell me. And Jesus answers their question. John chapter 6, verse 29. And Jesus answered the work. Notice it's singular here. They're wanting to know what the works are, plural. And Jesus answers with singular. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. He said, if you want to do a work, there aren't works. There's only a work. And Jesus is not saying, hey, you merit eternal life when you believe. You earn it when you believe. Yeah, it's a work. You get a check mark. Jesus is just, he understands the mindset of those who he's communicating with. He says, the work of God, you're asking me, what is the work that God requires to have eternal life? And Jesus just simplifies it to believe in the one he has sent. And Jesus is saying, I'm that one. I'm the son of God. I'm the one. And if you will believe in me, then you will get eternal life. I will give you eternal life if you believe that I'm, I'm the Messiah, if you believe that I'm the Christ. Salvation has never been earned by works. Salvation has always been freely received by believing. God freely gives it to us. In Christ, we freely receive it by believing. We see this in Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We see this in Romans chapter 4 and in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 3. We see it in Galatians chapter 3. It's believing. Righteousness comes by believing. How does a person become righteous so that they can have eternal life? Righteousness is a free gift. Everything is free. Righteousness is free. Eternal life is free. Everything is free. It's a gift. It, it comes by believing. That's what John says in John chapter 1, 9 through 13. It's believing. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Verse 11, John chapter 1. He came to that which was his own, that's the Jews, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. Yet to all who did receive him, accepted him as the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. To those who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God. Now, the words believe, believed, and believed are used a combined total of 89 times in the book of John. So 89 times believe, believed, and believes are used in the book of John. That's the message John is trying to get across in the book of John. As a matter of fact, the reason John wrote his book was so the reader would see the signs of Jesus, which would authenticate him as the Christ. And when they see the signs of Jesus authenticating Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world, as the King who came to establish God's kingdom on earth, that they would read about these signs in the book of John, and then the reader would believe that Jesus is the Christ. They would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the entire reason John wrote that book. How do we know that? Look at John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. 
John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. That's the book of John. But these signs are written in this book, the book of John that we're studying tonight. But these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Believing. That's why this book of John is written. So he's going to highlight the miracles of Jesus in the book of John so that people will see these miracles, see that Jesus is the Christ, and believe on him so that they can have eternal life. John also writes in 1 John 5, 1, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father love, loves his child as well. John writes in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Believing equals eternal life. All right. Where did John learn these truths from? From Jesus. John was with Jesus when Jesus was having this conversation in John chapter 6. He heard Jesus say in John 6, 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. John heard Jesus over and over and over and over again say, believe for eternal life. Believe. He was there with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes has eternal life and will not perish. So the theology of John was deeply established in, in what he heard Jesus say about eternal life. Belief in Jesus as the Christ equals eternal life. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to the Jewish people in John chapter 6. So when Jesus said for them to believe, that's the work. What works must we do, Jesus? What do we have to do? What works must we do to have eternal life? Jesus says, the work of God, the work God requires is not works, it's work is to believe in the one he has sent, to believe that I'm the Messiah, to believe that I'm the Christ. And so they respond to Jesus when he says the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they ask Jesus, what sign then will you give that we may see it, the sign that you give, and believe that you are the Son of God. Believe that you're the Christ. Believe that God has placed his seal of approval on you. G give us a sign, Jesus. What will you do? What miracle will you do to prove to us that you're the Messiah? And once you prove to us through your miracles that you're the Messiah, then we'll believe. But right now, we're not going to believe that you're the Messiah. Signs were very important in the Jewish culture. They authenticated God's will and God's work. They authenticated God's presence and provision to the Jewish people. Some of the miracles that the Jewish people had seen in their history was the miracles done in Egypt, the splitting of the Red Sea, the water coming from the rock in the wilderness, shoes not wearing out for 40 years in the wilderness. So them asking for a sign would not have been uncommon for the people of Israel to ask. The problem is they had just seen a pretty big sign, the feeding of the 5,000, the multiplication of the bread and of the fish. They had seen many people healed. I mean, they had seen signs. 
but they were still rejecting Jesus as the Christ. They wanted to see a bigger sign, do something more miraculous, do something bigger, really, really show us that you're the Messiah. Remember, John wrote in John 20, verse, verses 30 through 31, that Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these signs are written in this book. I'm recording them as I write, John says in this book, that you, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, you will have eternal life. And the belief is associated with the miracles that they saw. So the miracles would authenticate that Jesus was the Messiah, which then would lead them to believe that Jesus is the Christ and they would be given the gift of eternal life. The words sign and signs are used about 40 times in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it was really big in Jewish culture. And Jesus had given them the sign the previous day, proving that he was the Christ when he multiplied the fish and the bread. Now they want another sign. They want a bigger sign. They want a more miraculous sign. What miracle will you do? So that we, we will believe you're the Messiah, so that we will believe that you're the Christ. And look what they say to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 31. Our ancestors, this is a Jewish crowd. It's Jewish people talking about the generation of Jewish people. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Remember, we're studying the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testament. And here comes this topic all of a sudden, manna. The very manna that was in the golden jar of manna that was placed in the Ark of the Testament, or the Ark of the Covenant. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, it's a quotation here, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You can read about that manna again in Acts 16, Nehemiah 9, 15 through 20 talks about it, Psalm 78, 18 through 25, and Psalm 105, 40. So the topic of the manna is here. That's going to be the topic the rest of the way through. It's going to be eternal life. It's going to be believing. And it's going to be the manna the rest of the way through. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. He, Moses, gave them bread from heaven. Here's what they're, here's what they're saying. You got to top Moses. Look what Moses did. He brought down bread from heaven. And you multiplied some fish and some loaves of bread, but we want to see something much bigger. We want to see a miracle that is greater or at least equal to what Moses did. If we're going to believe you're the Messiah, if we're going to believe you're the Christ. So Jesus responds to them in John chapter six, verses 32 to 33. He says, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. And, and the bread that came out of heaven in the wilderness didn't come from Moses. It came from God. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now he's talking, I am the manna. So the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant, spoken of in Hebrews chapter 9, verses three through five, is Jesus himself. Jesus symbolically is in the coffin of the covenant because the 10 commandments bring death. 
Jesus paid the death when he gave up his body for us. And by doing that, he can give life to the world because he took our death. Nobody has to die now. We can all have eternal life. Yes, we die physically, but we can live in this age of eternal life to come. By the Spirit of Christ now indwelling us, we get new bodies to live on the new earth. So he died to give us life. So Jesus is the bread. Now, they responded to Jesus in John chapter 6, verses 34 through 36, this way. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Isn't that what the woman said, in, right? The lady in John chapter 4. Give, give me this water. I want to live forever. Give us this bread. We want to live forever. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, here's the statement. I am the bread of life. This bread is me. I am the bread. I am the manna. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry for what eternal life. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty for eternal life. Your desire for eternal life and living forever is fulfilled and satisfied in Jesus and believing in him. When you believe you have eternal life, you will never hunger for eternal life again. It's not belief plus works. It's not belief plus commitment. It's not belief plus devotion. It's not belief plus disciplines. It's not belief plus anything. It's simply belief. Trusting in Jesus, believing in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. Jesus goes on to say in verse 36, but as I told you, you have seen me, the bread of life, and you still do not believe that I'm the son of man, that I'm the Christ, that I'm Messiah. You've seen the miracles that I've done, and now you want a bigger miracle. You want a larger miracle. So you don't believe that I am the Messiah. You don't believe that I am the Christ. Most of the Jewish people, rather than believing, they wanted to continue to work for what Jesus was offering them for free. Jesus was offering eternal life to them for free. And they wanted to reject Jesus and work for eternal life. All right, the conversation continues in John 6, 37 through 40. Verse 37, all those the Father gives me, and this is, we'll see later, to be raised up on the last day. It goes back to Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, when the dead are raised, some are raised to eternal life, and some are raised to eternal condemnation. John 6, 37 through 40. All those the Father gives me to be raised up on the last day in the context of John chapter 6 in this conversation will come to me to be raised up on the last day. And whoever comes to me to be raised up on the last day, I will not drive away or I will not cast them into judgment they will have eternal life. They will not go into eternal condemnation. So the question is, who are those the Father gives to Jesus who will come to him? All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away or cast into judgment. They will be raised up to eternal life. So who are those the Father gives to Jesus is the Father selecting who will believe in Jesus? That's what Calvinists teach. There are many popular Calvinist teachers today, John Piper, John MacArthur. 
I don't believe that's what Jesus is teaching here. I don't believe Jesus is saying the Father will select who believes in Jesus. Are those the Father gifts of Jesus who come to them? Are those the Father selects who will believe in Jesus? Or is the Father sending to Jesus those who believe? And he's sending those who believe to Jesus so they'll be raised up on the last day. We're going to look at the answer to that here momentarily in verse 40 of John chapter 6, but just keep that in mind. Is the Father selecting who will believe, as the Calvinists say, or is the Father sending to Jesus those who already have believed? But for now, let's keep reading. Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He's the bread of life coming down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. So the question is this, what is the will of the Father Father that Jesus came to do? Look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 40 and 42. Jesus is, is praying. He's in the garden. He's about to go to the cross. It says, going a little further, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup, notice the word cup, may this cup be taken from me, not as I will, though, but as you will. So I've come down from heaven to do the will of the Father. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He said, may this cup be taken from me. And then he says, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42 of Matthew 26, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. We see in these verses that the cup is the cross. And it was the will of the Father for Jesus to drink of the cup of the cross. Let's look a little bit deeper into this cup and into the will of the Father that is the cross. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says this. I'm reading out of the literal standard version. It says, and while they were eating, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus having taken the bread and having blessed it, broke it. And was giving it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. And having taken the cup, there's the cup. That was the will. Remember, what's the will of the father to drink of the cup? We're going to see exactly what this cup is that Jesus was praying about right before he goes to the cross. This is the will of the father. Jesus came out of heaven as the bread of life to do the will of the father. And having taken the cup and given things, Jesus gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this cup is my blood of the New Testament that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, the many being the entire human race minus Jesus. So the cup is the blood of Jesus where he would establish the New Testament. That's what the symbolism is of the manna. In the Ark of the Testament, the Old Testament brings death, and the New Testament brings life. The manna is the body of Jesus given to bring about this New Testament of grace. We'll see that in just a minute, okay, in context of of John chapter 6. Luke 22, 19 through 20, and Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out 
for you or the New Testament in my blood, a whole new way of relating to God. So remember, Jesus in John says, I'm the bread of life who come out of heaven to earth to do the will of the Father. And we see that the will of the Father was for Jesus to go to the cross to establish the New Testament of grace, not establishing books, but establishing with his blood a new way of relating to God where we are confident we are completely cleansed of sins and forgiven of all sins so that we can enjoy a relationship with God. Look at Hebrews 10, 9 through 10 real quick. Then Jesus said, here I am. I have come to do your will, God. And what's the will of God for Jesus? He sets aside the first, that's the old covenant of law, the Ten Commandments that brought death and the rest of the law of Moses. And by that will, the will of God, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That was the will of God for Jesus in going to the cross to sanctify us, to purify us, to cleanse us of all sins and to forgive us of all sins. And by faith in Jesus, we're completely cleansed of all sins, receive full forgiveness of all sins. And this is the topic of John chapter six. This eternal life is secured in the New Testament of grace. Everything under the law of Moses was temporal, but in this New Testament of grace, it's an eternal covenant. The writer of Hebrews writes about that, an eternal testament that secures eternal life for us. In John chapter 6, verses 50 through 58, Jesus speaks about the New Testament when he speaks about his body and blood that he will give for the life of the world. He's not speaking about books in John chapter 6, 50 through 58. He's speaking about the cross. He's speaking about his blood And he's speaking in a Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. All right, we'll look at that in just a moment, but let's continue in John 6, 35 through 39. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Verse 37, all those the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away or cast out on the day of judgment. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of of him who sent me. And this is that will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me. Now, that word lose is the same word for perish in John 3.16. It's the exact same Greek word. So the idea here he's talking about, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not be lost for all eternity shall not perish for all eternity, that, that those who believe in Jesus will not be lost. They will not perish. They will have eternal life. And this is the will of him, God, who sent me, that I shall lose none of those. None will perish of the ones that he's given me. The question then is, who are the ones who the Father gives Jesus that will not perish? Are those ones selected by God? to believe and not perish? Or are those ones given to Jesus by God, ones that believed, and he sent to Jesus to be raised up on the last day in the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3? Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those the Father has given me, but raise them up on the last day. 
So the father is going to give to Jesus all those who believe. He's going to send to Jesus all those who believed so that they will be raised up on the last day and have everlasting life on the new earth. The father's not selecting who will believe. He's sending those who believe to Jesus to be raised up on the last day. They're raised up on the last day because they believed in Jesus and they're sent to Jesus by the Father because they believed. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of them on this last day, Daniel chapter 12, two through three, when the dead are raised. Jesus talked about that in John chapter five. He talked about it with Martha in John chapter 11. Paul spoke about it. We read that earlier as well, this last day of being raised. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on this last day. All right, well, let's keep reading in John 6, 40. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes shall have eternal life. So the ones who look to Jesus as the son, as the Christ, and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they believe that Jesus is the Christ they will have eternal life. These are the ones that the Father gives to Jesus. Jesus receives from the Father those who believed in him so that he will raise them up on the last day. All right, Daniel 12, 2 through 3, raised up on the last day. So the Father is not selecting who will believe in Jesus for salvation. Rather, the Father is sending to Jesus those who believe so that they can be raised up to eternal life on the last day. Verse 41, at this, the statement of Jesus in verse 40 about believing in him, being raised up and having eternal life. At this, the Jews then began to grumble about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? They're not believing in Jesus. Verse 43, Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. And then Jesus answered in verse 44, no one can come to me in the context to be raised up on the last day unless the father who sent me draws them to me and I will raise them up on the last day. Now, what does the word draw here mean? Are the ones the father brings to Jesus to be raised up on the last day Those who God has selected are those who have believed. So what does this word draw mean? Now, remember, we saw in verse 40, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Belief. They're the ones that are going to be raised up at that last day. So who are the ones who will come to Jesus to be raised up on the last day? Those who come to Jesus to be raised up on the last day are those who are brought by the Father to Jesus. That's what the word drawn means. In the Greek language here, when you look at the word draw, the Calvinists use this verse a lot. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. They will say that's salvation. The word draw here simply means to bring, to carry, to transport, to take from one place to another. That's all that means, to take from one place to another. 
It's not the wooing here. It's not the, the drawing of the wooing. It's to take from one place to another. So the father will take to Jesus is what this Greek word means here. Will take to Jesus all those who believe so that they will be raised up on the last day, eternal life. So the father will draw or take to Jesus and give to Jesus all those who believe. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ in verse 40. In John chapter 12, verses 32 through 33, Jesus uses the word draw. Jesus uses the word draw in John 12, 32 through 33. And he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This is the exact same Greek word as John chapter 6, verse 44, when the Father draws those to Jesus or brings those to Jesus. All right, it's the same exact Greek word. Jesus uses this word in John 12, 32-33, and I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all people to myself. So draw can't mean salvation. Draw simply means I'm going to bring people to, to, to the cross, and then people will have a decision to make. We just had Easter last weekend, right? And the attention of the world was on Jesus. The attention of the world was brought to Jesus, but not everybody are believers, okay? He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die, being lifted up on the cross. So the cross, what happened at the cross draws people, it gets people's attention. Some people say, ah, you know, he didn't rise from the dead. Some people say he did rise from the dead, but most people say he died on a cross. He lived and he died on the cross but then they have a decision to make. So the cross brings all men to Jesus, but it doesn't save all men who come to the cross. There's a decision to make. All right. When Jesus uses the word draw, it doesn't equal salvation. If it does, then all people are saved. It just means there's a decision to be made. In the Septuagint, that's the Jewish translation of the Hebrew scriptures in the Greek language, the word for draw in John 6:44 is the same word for drawn in Jeremiah 31:3 where God says to the nation of Israel I've loved you with an everlasting love I've drawn you with an unfailing kindness so even though God drew the people of Israel to himself most did not respond in faith to God but rebelled to God they rejected God so drawn doesn't mean when Jesus uses it in John 12 the salvation of all Look in Hosea 11.4. God says, I drew them with gentle cords, with brands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck, and I stooped and fed them. Let's read the whole context in Hosea 11.1 through 4. This is in the NIV version. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called him. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. So they're running from God. They're rebelling from God. And we see how. They sacrificed to the bells. These are false gods, and they burn incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them. I drew them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and bent down to feed them. But what did they do? They were drawn, but they rebelled. The more he drew them, 
the further they ran from him. So drawn doesn't mean salvation. That's what I'm trying to say when Jesus says that in in John chapter 12. It's the opportunity to respond in faith, in accepting or rejecting, just like in the scriptures that we just read. Now, when the father draws, it means he brings, context is going to determine the meaning of that word, the father brings to Jesus all those who believe. When Jesus uses it, it's people are brought to the cross and they're either going to believe or not believe. Okay. I just want us to to know because what the Calvinists say is that means salvation. Well, we see that it doesn't mean salvation. All right, let's continue in John 64, 44 through 45. No one can come to me, Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws them or brings them to Jesus, brings all those who believe to Jesus so that they can be raised up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up, those the Father brings because they believe in me, and I will raise them up on the last day. Again, this is rooted in Daniel 12, 2 through 3, everlasting life. Who are those who are going to be raised up to everlasting life? Those who believe. Who are those that the Father brings to Jesus to be raised up for everlasting life? Those who believe. The Father's not selecting who believes. He's sending to Jesus those who believe to be raised up on the last day. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Jesus is the teacher of Israel through Jesus God is teaching the nation of Israel. That's a quote there from Isaiah 54, 13. And they're experiencing this time when God is teaching the nation of Israel through Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. And they have a decision to make. They're being drawn to Christ and they have a decision to make. Are they going to listen and believe or listen and reject? It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by me. Everyone who has heard the Father speaking through Jesus and teaching them to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from the Father, that's those who listen to and learn from the Father through the words of Jesus, that he's the Messiah, that he's to the Christ, and by believing in him, you will have eternal life. They'll come to me because they believe. The Father was speaking through Jesus during this time. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 12, 46 through 50 gives us insight into how the Father was speaking through Jesus during this time. Look what Jesus says in John 12, 46 through 50. I, Jesus, have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words about me being the Christ but does not keep my words about me being the Messiah, me being the Christ. He says, I do not judge the person who rejects me as the Christ, for I did not come to judge the world, but I came to save the world so that no one would perish but have everlasting life. There is a judge for the one who rejects me as the Christ, who doesn't keep my words, who do not believe. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, the very words I have spoken about me being the Messiah. The Father's placed his seal of approval upon me. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, the very words I've spoken will condemn them at the last day. The last day, that's Daniel 12, 2 through 3. It's what Martha talked about. It's what Paul talked about. 
Why will they be condemned on the last day? Because Jesus said, I'm the Messiah. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Therefore, they will not have eternal life. They will have eternal condemnation. Verse 49, for I did not speak on my own, but the father who sent me commanded me to say that all that I have spoken. I know that his command, what's the father's command to believe that Jesus is the Christ, John 3, 16, leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the father has told me. Remember, we're looking at Isaiah 54, 13, that Jesus quoted when he said, they will all be taught by God. God is teaching the nation of Israel through Jesus, and he's teaching the nation of Israel, specifically in this synagogue in Capernaum, that Jesus is the Messiah. And all through the book of John, Jesus is constantly teaching, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. Believe in me, you will have eternal life. Well, rejection of Jesus leads to eternal condemnation on the last day. Accepting Jesus as the Messiah leads to eternal life on the last day. You can also look in Deuteronomy 18, 18, John 8, 28. All right, those who heard the words of the Father through Jesus and learned about who he is, the Christ, and accepted him, they were the ones who believed in Jesus as the Christ. Those who the Father sends to Jesus, those who come to Jesus, are those who believed, and they will be raised up on the last day. They hear they learn and they believe that Jesus is the Christ. Whereas Calvinism says that God selects those who will believe in Jesus for salvation. What I see in this context is, the, is that God, the Father, sends those who believe, not selects those who believe. John 6, 46 through 49, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Anyone can believe. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And that anyone who believes and that whoever who eats, God's going to bring them to Jesus on the last day to experience resurrected life on this new earth. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So how does a person eat the bread of, of Jesus, the flesh of Jesus. Jesus answered this question in John 6, 35 through 36. Jesus answered, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So believing, we eat, we, we, we drink of Jesus and eat of Jesus by believing. All right, John 6, 52 through 59. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. There it is again. I will raise them up on the last day. Who are those who are raised up on the last day? It's those who eat and drink of Jesus. And how do you eat and drink of Jesus by believing? And what are you eating and drinking from the new covenant of grace? That's it. Those who eat and drink from this new Testament of grace established in the blood of Jesus by, and they eat and drink by believing God will raise them up on the last day. They will have eternal life. So the Jewish person is listening to all this in the synagogue. It's not by works. It's by believing and the new covenant is being established, and the old covenant is coming to an end, is what Jesus is saying. Verse 55, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. He's talking about the cross there, right? 
It's talking about establishing the New Testament. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood by believing remains in me and I in them. 57, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me by believing will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven. This is the manna that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. That's the manna that was in the Ark of the Testament, the coffin of the Testament. This is the bread that came down from heaven and your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread, Jesus, me, you will be brought to life. God's going to give you, because you're a believer, to Jesus to be raised to life on the last day, and you will enter into the new earth that we find out in Revelation, where there's no more death, eternal life. You will live forever. Your ancestors ate man and died, but whoever feeds on this bread, believes in me, and what I'm about to go to do on the cross, will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And we know that it's eating and drinking of the New Testament because that's what Jesus talks about in Matthew 26, 26 through 28. And the New Testament is the blood of Jesus that secured our full forgiveness and our complete cleansing of sins. He rose from the dead. He now indwells us. All right, let's finish up real quick. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. On hearing it, eat of my body and drink of my blood, Many of his disciples said, now his disciples is not talking about the 12 here. The disciples here is talking about those in the synagogue in Capernaum. Many of those who saw the miracle that Jesus did with the fish and the bread. They're seeking out Jesus. They find Jesus on the other side of the lake. They follow Jesus into the synagogue. He's teaching them. They're disciples. It just simply means they're learners. They're listening to Jesus. Some are learning, some aren't learning, but they're there, they're students. On hearing it about eat of my body and drink of my blood, this New Testament, many of his disciples said, this isn't the 12. This is a hard teaching, this eat of my body and drink of my blood. Who can accept that? This guy's crazy. Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, again, that's not the 12, that's those in the synagogue, students, the students in the synagogue who are listening to Jesus teach. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Does this me talking about this New Testament of grace, does that offend you? Does me talking about my body and my blood and believing for eternal life, does that offend you? And then Jesus says to the Jewish people, these disciples, these students, they're in the synagogue, they're learning. It's a classroom at this time. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Now, where was Jesus before? I'm the bread that came out of heaven. God sent me from heaven to earth. So what if he see me go back to heaven? Verse 63, the Spirit gives life. That's the Spirit of Jesus indwelling the believer after the Spirit came, making us alive with Christ. The flesh counts for nothing. You can't work your way into eternal life. You cannot work. There's no works you can do for eternal life, he told the, the audience. The words I've spoken to you, they are, are full of spirit and life. And what were the words? Believing in Jesus as the Christ. Believing is how you have eternal life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. So Jesus was teaching the audience in Capernaum at the synagogue, and he knew, he's looking at people out there, he's like, I, I know there's some of you who don't believe anything that I'm saying. 
For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe. So that's a group of which of them did not believe and who would betray him. 65, and he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me to be raised up on the last day unless, unless the Father has enabled. Now, that's not the word there. That's a poor word, enabled here. It's the word give. It's the word that's been used all the way through this entire section. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father gives them to me. All right. It's given in the original Greek manuscript. It's how the literal standard version, it doesn't use enabled. It, it uses given. The Young's literal translation uses given. The World English Bible uses given. The New Heart English Bible uses given. This is one of the major words for Calvinism here. You can't be saved unless the Father enables you to be saved. Now, that, that's just a terrible translation that you're basing your theology on. The Father is giving to Jesus those who have believed so that they can be raised up on the last day in the context. All right. Now, in John 6, 65, the Father gives to Jesus to be raised up on the last day, those who have believed. It's not enabled, it's given. That's the word. And then verse 66 of John 6, from this time, many of his disciples, that's those of the crowd listening to Jesus teach in the synagogue in Capernaum, turned back and no longer followed Jesus. Remember, they, were, they followed Jesus from where he did the miracle on one side of the lake all the way to the other side of the lake. They're seeking Jesus out. They're listening to Jesus, and then they reject everything he has to say. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. A disciple isn't a believer. A disciple is simply a learner. That's it. Can a believer be a disciple? Yes. Can an unbeliever be a disciple? Yes. It's simply somebody who's listening to another person teach. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Then Jesus said to the 12, all right, now he's addressing his 12 disciples. That's how we know in the verses preceding verse 67, he's not talking about the 12 or talking to the 12. He's talking to the crowd at Capernaum in the synagogue. Now he turns his attention to the 12 and he says, you, the 12, you do not want to leave me too, as the other disciples did, who saw me do the miracles, who heard me talking about eating and drinking of the flesh and believing you will have eternal life and that I'm the Christ. They're rejecting everything that I just said or that the Father's saying through me, the Father's teaching them through me. He says, you, like them, do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Verse 68, Simon Peter, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. What did Peter see here? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe. That's the words of eternal life. What did Jesus say? How does a person have eternal life? Believe. And, and what is it I'm believing in? I'm believing in Jesus. He's given his body for me. He's, he's shedding his blood for me. And I'm believing, I'm eating, I'm drinking of that truth by believing. The New Testament established in his blood. We have come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ, the one set apart by God, the Holy One, meaning the one set apart by God to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And by that he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who 
who, though one of the 12, was later to betray him. So here's one that Jesus chose who is a believer. In Calvinism, it says God chooses. Well, we see here that you can be chosen by God and not be saved because you reject Jesus as the Christ. So Calvinism kind of begins to fall apart a little bit in some of their beliefs when you really look behind the scenes of some of these words. So Let's return to the beginning of the study real quick. The gold jar of manna, the bread, which was placed in the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizes Jesus dying for the forgiveness of our sins when he gave his body the bread and shed his blood. Remember, from our last study, the word Ark means coffin, and after dying for our sins, Jesus' body was placed in a coffin or in a tomb. However, Jesus did not remain in the tomb. He arose from the dead, leaving the dead of our sin in the tomb and bringing eternal life to those who believe. The resurrection is symbolized in the budding of Aaron's staff. We're going to look at that next week, where once a dead piece of wood comes to life from a coffin. So in our next study, we're going to look and examine how the budding of Aaron's staff is symbolic of the resurrection. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org. And you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.